Who was the best president at managing a crisis? Well, CNN has an answer, and it's not right. I'll talk about it on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. If you want a great educational website, then make sure you check out McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Free to enroll. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History, when you do enroll. And I've got a lot of great courses there available for purchase. So hop on over there, get the free class, enroll for free. You get on the email list at McClanahan Academy, where you'll get coupons when I have new classes out. And big hint, one's coming out real soon, so you're going to want to get that class. In fact, I'm going to talk about it a little bit today. So head over to McClanahanAcademy.com, enroll free of charge, get the free class, and you keep this podcast free of charge when you purchase one or 20 classes there. If you like the podcast, you'll love McClanahan Academy. All right. Don't forget also to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you love it and share it around on social media. Give it that five-star review. Leave a text review and also comment on YouTube where you can. It helps the algorithm. Give it that super thanks button if you really like it as well. Well, let's talk about the topic. And of course, it is this presidential rankings at CNN. We just had President's Day yesterday. And so uh, everyone's out celebrating the presidents. Now, we know originally that was George Washington's birthday, which, of course, Washington's birthday is tomorrow. Uh, But uh, that had to be changed to incorporate all of these presidents. Now, what's really interesting about that is if you go back to the 18th century into the 19th century, more the 19th century, early 19th century, you had um, the Federalists often celebrating George Washington's birthday, whereas the Republicans would celebrate Fourth of July. Now, it didn't mean that the, Fe- the Federalists wouldn't honor Independence Day, but they certainly wanted to honor George Washington, too. And this idea of, of celebrating a president's birthday, the Republicans smacked of monarchy because you had to honor the king's birthday. And that was seen as this kind of holdover from the old days of the crown. So uh, what we've done essentially in America by having President's Day is we worship the office of the presidency. I think it's a very bad day. Now, I have no problem having Washington's birthday as a as a holiday or uh, having people, you know, take a day like that. Uh, Washington was uh, the indispensable American. There is no United States without George Washington. And even though I have some problems with some of the ways Washington handled issues, and I'll talk about that today, uh, I think that he still was worthy of, of the honor of having a day off in, in, uh, for his birthday. But uh, July 4th also, Secession Day, Independence Day, very important. But of course, when you have people like, uh, you know, just take your pick. Joe Biden, honored with President's Day, Barack Obama, I mean, George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush. I mean, you just go down the list. I could basically say we're honoring all of these nincompoops that have been president. Well, why do I want to do that? I don't want to have President's Day. Let's call it George Washington's birthday and get on with it. But of course, uh, you know, this happened in, in the, during the Nixon administration, this idea that we're going to kind of roll all these days together because we had Abraham Lincoln hanging out there too. And what do we do about gr- the great emancipator, Honest Abe, the man who saved the Union, right? What do we do about that? We can't have two holidays within a week of each other. So you just put them together and you think that we've done a good deed to put all these presidents together. Now, 
I'm going to talk about Lincoln a little bit, along with some other people on this list. And of course, Daryl Issa, who is running for Congress, he was already in Congress, now he's running for Congress again. Uh, Daryl Issa put out a tweet about Abraham Lincoln giving his life for the Union. Of course, he didn't give his life, he was assassinated. But uh, And what kind of Union was left? That's the real question. When people say Lincoln saved the Union, you have to ask the question, what Union? What Union was it? Was it the original Union? Well, of course it wasn't. And now what's happening is the left actually realizes that. They're fine with saying it wasn't the real union. I've talked about it on this show. I talked about it yesterday. Noah Feldman writes a book about the transition from the original union to the union we have now. And he's fine with that. He says, look, yeah, you're right. All you conservatives that talk about the original Constitution and the original United States, yeah, all that existed. You're correct about all of that. You know what happened, though? We had the war, and then we had the Civil War Amendments, namely the 14th, and that changed everything. And so you have people like Eric Foner calling it the Second Revolution, the Second American Revolution, basically echoing Charles and Mary Beard, who said the same exact thing, not for that reason, but that's what they called it. They called it a Second American Revolution because it uh, solidified this kind of uh, you know, neo-federalist control of the general government. It nationalized everything. It created a national United States. So it didn't really save the Union. It created a national government. And you have to ask conservatives, is that what they really want when they run around talking about things like federalism and state powers and states resisting the central government and uh, people standing up to the central authority? Well, who was the first person to make the central authority that abusive? Well, it would have to be in, in a way that you know required a tremendous amount of bloodshed to enforce it. Well, it would have to be honest Abe. Now, we know there were two presidents before that who did the exact same thing, uh, but without that much bloodshed. And that would, of course, be Andrew Jackson and George Washington. So we're going to talk about today which presidents manage crises best, or crises, I should say. Which presidents manage a crisis the best? According to CNN, uh, in a poll of historians, it was Abraham Lincoln. So did Lincoln manage this crisis the best? We had a crisis when Lincoln took office. And the crisis, of course, was that we already had several states out of the Union. The Deep South, seven states had already seceded from the Union. And there was this open discussion about what to do about it. Well, even before that, even before you had secession, I'm talking about before Lincoln took office, after the election of 1860. South Carolina's out in December of 1860. But there is a brief period of time before that where you had discussion in Congress about what to do about this issue. People knew that South Carolina was itching to get out of the Union. And, of course, there was talk of it in the other deep South states. that they were going to leave because they thought the Republican Party, which controlled Congress after the 1860 election, and now with Lincoln in the executive office, would violate the Constitution. This is important. Now, I know that people are going to say, well, what about those secession declarations, McClanahan? It all says right there we're seceding for slavery because they're worried about slavery. Well, they did talk about this a lot. Yes, they thought that slavery ultimately would be under attack by the Republican Party. Of course, the Republican Party promised that would not happen. Lincoln himself promised he wasn't going to touch slavery where it already existed. The idea was to contain it in the South and then hopefully it would wither away. That was the point. And they weren't going to touch it in the states where it already existed, though I don't think the, Repo I don't think the, the uh, 
the people in the South, the Deep South, trusted the Republican Party to do that because if they could do something which they thought was unconstitutional, which was regulate slavery in the territories, then what's to stop them from doing something else that was unconstitutional, which would, of course, be abolish slavery in the South? See, this was a constitutional crisis that had gone back into the early days of the Federal Republic. You can go all the way back to Hamilton and his proposal for a Bank of the United States and his carriage tax and his, uh, his economic programs. All of this, Southerners believed, was unconstitutional. As you go through the 19th century, you see constitutional crisis after constitutional crisis because the nationalists were bent on centralizing power. They wanted to control the central government. This is what northern uh, nationalism really was. It was actually northern sectionalism. I've talked about it on the show. And, and so what you have throughout the entire late 18th and early 19th century is a constitutional crisis that finally comes to a head during the uh, 1850s and 1860s. And Southerners believed it was settled with the Dred Scott decision. Now, we can talk about the, the quality of the Dred Scott decision and what the Tawny Court did there, but Southerners argued the issue was over, that the Supreme Court had finally decided the issue and that they were going to go along with it because this, this settled it, right? We, we've said, let's put it in the courts. Let's let these things get settled. Well, of course, this was something bigger in many ways than the court could handle. It was a political crisis, and it was a political crisis because it was a structural crisis. What was the nature of the general government? That was the real issue. Every other issue was subservient to that in reality. There's an immediate break, but then there's this long issue of this constitutional question throughout the early part of American history, throughout all of antebellum American history. So when Lincoln comes into office, he's inherited this crisis. But before that, in uh, December of 1860, you have various proposals floating around Congress to come up with a political solution to this, some type of permanent political resolution. What could we do, Congress was saying, to solve this problem? And only South Carolina has succeeded at that point. No other state had. Only South Carolina. So what could we do to come up with a way to maybe get South Carolina to come back in the Union? Uh, maybe we, of course, we can keep the rest of the United States together. No other state will secede. The Union didn't cease to exist, by the way, when seven states were out of the Union. It still existed. They still had a government. They still had all the financial houses. They still had a military. Clearly, clearly it's still a military because they used it against the South. They still had everything. The Union was still there. The Constitution was still there. It was still in force. So all these people that say that if the South had left, the Union was destroyed. I mean, this is just complete stupidity. There's nothing closely uh, true about that. I mean, it just, that wasn't true at all. So uh, you had this political crisis now that had spilled over into open secession and you had various proposals in Congress, including the famous Crittenden Amendments. Now, John J. Crittenden was from Kentucky. Uh, he was, in many ways, he thought of himself as the heir of Henry Clay. So, by the way, did Abraham Lincoln. But uh, Crittenden comes from Kentucky, and he comes up with a way, he thinks, to save the Union. And that would have been proposals that had already been on the table for years. One of them was to extend the Missouri Compromise out to the Pacific, the other was to have an unamendable amendment to the Constitution. Now, the question is, is that even possible? Can you even have an amendment to the Constitution that can't be amended? You'd actually have to amend the Constitution to say you have this unamendable amendment. But 
The idea was to have an unamendable amendment that said that the general government could not interfere with slavery or it already existed. So, in other words, it couldn't abolish it from South Carolina or Alabama or Mississippi or any other southern states that had slavery. Or New Jersey. Couldn't abolish it there either. Uh, so, the, the idea was to have these amendments in place to extend the Missouri Compromise Line to save the Union. What was more important? The Union. I mean, this is what Lincoln said. He's a Union. I, if I could save the Union without freeing any slaves, I would do it. If I could save the Union freeing all the slaves, I would do it. If I could free the Union by freeing some of the slaves, I would do it. Well, if that's true, then he would have supported this Crittenden Compromise. But you know what? Lincoln did not. In fact, he's writing private letters telling Republicans not to support the Compromise. And they had an opportunity. It was called the Committee of Thirteen. And the presiding officer of the Committee of 13 was Jefferson Davis of Mississippi. There were eight Democrats on this committee and five Republicans, reflecting the Congress at the time. The Republican Party was a substantial minority in, uh, in 1860 when this proposal was floated. They had not yet taken their seats in the new Congress. So the Democrats supported the Crittenden proposal. In fact, all of them did. All of them, including Jefferson Davis of Mississippi and Toombs of Georgia. They all supported it. They all supported the Crittenden Compromise. Every single Southerner supported it. They didn't. All they would get, theoretically, was a little bit further of the Missouri Compromise out the Pacific. They would lose the opportunity to have any Northern Territory become slave states if they were worried about you know, extending slavery there. But they would just extend it out. This was something that would have been a major concession to them, if you think about it, in the 1850s, because the Supreme Court had already said that you couldn't prohibit slavery anywhere in the Western territories. So this was a concession for Southerners to do this. Now, again, I know when I say this, people, well, then it would have kept slavery. Would it would have extended slavery? Would, of course, Davis had the response to extending slavery. It doesn't extend anything. Uh, but the fact is, they would, have, they would have accepted a compromise on this, uh, people would say, well, that will be the Union accepting a compromise. That'd be uh, the, the Republicans accepting a compromise they didn't want. They, were already, they had already lost. They had already lost in the Supreme Court. Even if they came in to office and passed legislation saying that slavery would be prohibited in the Western territories, that would have been illegal according to the Supreme Court. And the South would have, I'm sure, filed a suit, brought it to the court, and it would have been overturned. You see? This would have happened regardless of what happens in 1860 and 61 with secession. If the South stays in the Union, they don't leave, and the Republican Party comes in and, and does what they're going to do, there would have been a lawsuit about it immediately. It would have been blocked. There would have been an injunction, and the Supreme Court would have heard it. And, of course, based on the Dred Scott decision, it would have been held illegal. So... Uh, that's an important thing to understand here. The South is already compromising on this by accepting the Crittenden proposal. Lincoln, again, is writing the Republicans saying, do not compromise. And so Jefferson Davis had adopted a position of a dual majority. For any compromise proposal to go through this committee of 13, it would have required majorities of both Democrats and Republicans. So you had to have at least three Republicans support any proposal. When all five Republicans kept opposing every proposal, 
Davis and Toombs would switch their votes and they would vote against anything. And so all the proposals failed seven to six, including the most famous Crittenden Compromise. Now, John J. Crittenden suggested that this be put to a national referendum in some way. Let's put it out to the American public and see what they think about this. Now, that would have been unprecedented. There's, no, again, no constitutional mechanism to do this. There's nothing in the United States Constitution that says you can, the Congress can put legislation out to uh, the people at large and let them vote on something. But Crittenden wanted to do that. It was rejected. That idea was rejected. Now, if he had done that, though, historians generally agree. It doesn't matter what, where you are on, on the spectrum. They generally agree, the political spectrum, they generally agree that um, the American public probably would have accepted the Crittenden Compromise. And that's based on the fact that Lincoln only received about 39% of the popular vote in 1860. So 60% of the American public, 61% almost, were immovably against Abraham Lincoln being president of the United States. You had support for Stephen Douglas, the Northern Democrat. You had support for, who, by the way, Stephen Douglas was still advocating popular sovereignty. You had support for John J. Breckinridge, the Southern Democratic candidate, who was in favor of the Dred Scott decision. And you had people in, in favor of John Bell of Tennessee, who was kind of in a halfway house. I mean, Bell would have, have been on, in line with more of like the Crittenden proposal. So 60% of the American public, voting public, would have agreed with the Crittenden proposal. That's tremendous. 60%. So if it goes to a referendum, a national referendum, it certainly passes. The crisis is avoided and the union is saved. Lincoln didn't do any of that. Lincoln didn't advocate any of that. He, in fact, was immovably against all of that. Writing Republicans, telling them don't, don't do it. Making speeches saying don't compromise. Is that a man who is managing a crisis well. The crisis came when Lincoln refused to, as president-elect, to say anything that would have saved the Union at that point. Now, why would Lincoln do this? Well, I think Lincoln very well understood the situation. If compromise is reached, you want to know what happens to the Republican Party? It goes down in crushing defeat in 1862. Lincoln would have been a one-term president. That would have been it their entire model would have been destroyed. Now, their model essentially was Whiggish or Hamiltonian economics with this push for no slavery in the territories. Well, that issue is now off the table with the Crittenden Compromise. Americans were not really in favor of the Whiggish or Hamiltonian economic system, and we know that because the eight years prior had been in control uh, the Democrats have been control of the executive branch. And both Franklin Pierce and James Buchanan were really not on board with much of the Hamiltonian system, though Buchanan was much more in favor of tariffs than Pierce or many other Democrats because he was from Pennsylvania, and Pennsylvania had iron foundries, and a tariff on iron manufacturing would have been great. We know Southerners had resisted this idea for the moral tariff, this very high protective tariff. Once they're out of the Union, the tariff passes. But they had, been, they had been arguing against it and had tabled it many times. We know what happens if the Lincoln regime is not going to be in power very long. Their entire system is gone, and the entire trajectory of the United States moves in a different direction. 
Lincoln was choosing his party and political power over union. That's not managing a crisis. And of course, when he's told in his cabinet meetings in March after he assumes office that if you provision Fort Sumter, you're going to start a war, and he does it anyways, that's not really managing a crisis very well. In fact, he said this is what he wanted. Again, not managing a crisis. So this idea that 96%, I think it was, let me look at the total number here. Uh, yeah, 96% of C-SPAN, this is not CNN, C-SPAN, I'm sorry. C-SPAN, 96% said that Lincoln managed a crisis best is an absolute joke. Now, what else? Who else is on this list? So now that I've taken most of the show on Abraham Lincoln, who else is on this list? George Washington's on the list. Well, I could say that Washington did not manage a crisis very well with the Whiskey Rebellion. It was pretty bad. Uh, Washington, in fact, was not necessarily sure that he had the legal authority to go out into western Pennsylvania and even go after these, these uh, western farmers who were resisting federal taxes. Now, Alexander Hamilton told him he did. And, of course, they were able to secure the, uh, the authority from Joseph's, um, I'm sorry, from James Wilson. I was going to say Joseph's story. James Wilson, James the Caledonia, who was on the Supreme Court. This was from the Militia Act. And it required that a Supreme Court justice would sign off on this kind of action in a state. The governor of Pennsylvania, Mifflin, Thomas Mifflin, said he didn't want the federal government there. The, uh, the attorney general uh, said that this was illegal. The Supreme Court chief justice said this was illegal. But Washington did it anyways because Alexander Hamilton told him it was the right thing to do. Now, Washington managed that part of it after they got there and there was really nothing there. He pardoned people. and did. So in that way, you could say that Washington uh, managed it better than Lincoln did, but uh, certainly didn't manage it, I don't think, very well at all. But I will give him that that's the one blemish on Washington's administration. I think that's fine. Uh, but that's, I mean, look, if you read Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America, I spend a little bit of time on that in that book because George Washington... Uh, did this, and that set a very dangerous precedent for Andrew Jackson. Now, Jackson's not on this list, but set a very dangerous precedent for Andrew Jackson, and then later, Honest Abe. Also on the list, Franklin Roosevelt, again, didn't manage a crisis very well. In fact, you could argue he dragged us into war. This is what you know Charles Tansel had said, the back door to war. Um, you know, There are all kinds of people who have been critical of Roosevelt's handling of the situation leading into World War II. Also, the Great Depression, let's not forget that. Uh, you could argue that Roosevelt's policies made the Great Depression much worse. We know that Warren Harding managed a depression in the 1920s better than Roosevelt did in the 1930s. The depression was over within a couple of years, and that was it. But, of course, the Great Depression drags on for nearly a decade because of Roosevelt's heavy-handed policies. And then he gets us into World War II. Uh, I mean, look, Roosevelt was pushing for it. Is that managing a crisis? We lose 300,000 men in World War II. Uh, and, and there were certainly people that were not interested in this war. In fact, on September 11th, 1941, Charles Lindbergh makes a very famous speech in Des Moines, Iowa, arguing that there were essentially special interests interested in getting into this war. And uh, one of those, he said, was the Democrat Party. The other was the banking interests. And the one that got him in the most trouble was saying that Jewish Americans were interested in getting America involved in the war. And you could understand why that 
uh, that group of people would want it. I mean, you're looking at what's happening in Europe, and there it's it's a real crisis for uh, for Jewish people in Europe, and they want to help. So you can understand it. He wasn't saying that to be anti-Semitic in any way. Uh, and in fact, if you go back and comb through Lindbergh's statements. I don't think you'll find really anything anti-Semitic that he ever said. And saying that there are people interested in going to war is not anti-Semitic. But of course, that's even the conservatives today will call Charles, they just echo what Roosevelt said about it, which was incorrect. Um, so uh, that's, that's a, a man who didn't manage a crisis very well uh, at all. Again, at all. Truman, Truman didn't manage a crisis well. Uh, I mean, the Korean War, the Cold War, I mean, he didn't manage this well. At all. And then, of course, you had uh, the end of the war and how he, he didn't really demobilize or do anything to, uh, to change uh, the way the United States was handling its economy. He's trying to nationalize a steel industry. This man was a disaster. Uh, there is one person, two people on the list that I do think managed a crisis pretty well, and that would be Jefferson and Reagan. And there, of course, are others that I think could manage a crisis well. But let me focus on those two because they didn't make the list. I think Jefferson handled a crisis better than anybody else on this list when you're talking about a political crisis. And that political crisis was open talk of disunion when he assumed the office in 1801. Well, who else had to manage that crisis? Well, Abraham Lincoln. What did Jefferson do about that? There are actually Northerners talking about leaving the Union in 1800 and 1801, openly. Uh, and so, you know, you have... The Essex Junto later on, talking about leaving the Union after the Louisiana Purchase. Uh, but Jefferson makes the inaugural address. And this is where I said, I'm going to talk about the next class that I've got coming very briefly. It is reading Thomas Jefferson. And I go through this inaugural address and I talk about this, not as much in more detail than I'm going to mention today, but Jefferson managed a secession crisis with conciliation. Jefferson managed a secession crisis by essentially doing nothing. Now, granted, no state had left the Union when he took office. Not in Lincoln, he had seven states already out of the Union. But Lincoln had pushed for that, essentially. Jefferson managed it by saying, we know these people over here have some opinions that we don't, we don't agree with. Let them remain undisturbed. Let them remain undisturbed. He managed the crisis by saying, just kind of ignore it. Uh, eventually, they'll wake up. They'll, they'll see they were stupid, and we can, we can get back to business here because we're all Democrats and we're all Republicans. That's not what Lincoln did. Lincoln comes into office and says, I'm going to enforce the law. I'm going to enforce the law. And if you think you're going to get away with something, you're not. I'm sending in the military. It's an entirely different position. So Jefferson managed that early secession crisis, and it was a secession crisis. I mean, heck, New Englanders are talking about getting out of the Union in 1794. It was a secession crisis. So I think that Jefferson should be much higher than he is on this list. Now, you can give him, you can ding him for the embargo, uh, which was a disaster. But this is why Jefferson is one of the four men who tried to save America, and nine presidents who screwed up America, and four who tried to save her. That's why Jefferson's in that. He managed that crisis better. Now, Reagan. I'll just say this briefly about Reagan. The Cold War. That was a major crisis. Reagan won the Cold War. I mean, there is no larger crisis in the 20th century than the Cold War. Truman didn't do it very well. FDR created it. Uh, but Reagan managed it better than any because 
He won, right? The United States wins the Cold War. His Berlin Wall speech, amazing speech. He won the Cold War. That managed the crisis very well. And look, in, of all these presidents on here, Washington, of course, was elected unanimously. Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, did receive when crushing electoral college victories. But Reagan was right there with him. Uh, Eisenhower's also on the list. I'm not going to talk about Ike, but Eisenhower's on the list. Again, very popular president. Reagan, in 1984, won an election that, uh, I mean, is just mind-boggling and how bad he whipped up on Walter Mondale. It was a huge election. Even in 1980, Reagan wins in a pretty crushing landslide. So he's a very popular president and one of the most popular and, I think, best at managing a crisis in American history. So all that said, C-SPAN uh, did a very poor job coming up with people who managed a crisis here. None of the top group, and again, let me, let, me, let me just go through their list because I think it's important. You got Lincoln, bad. Washington had one blip. Franklin Roosevelt, awful. Teddy Roosevelt, um, when you look at Roosevelt's crisis management, I think they're kind of going after you know the, the peacemaker Roosevelt, but um, I'm not so certain Roosevelt managed crises very well at all. He kind of created some in the executive office. Um, maybe politically. I mean, I'm not really certain where they're going with this. Uh, Truman, awful. Eisenhower. Uh, Eisenhower's situation, again, maybe the Cold War, uh, civil rights movement, early uh, intervention in the civil rights movement is what they're saying. That was handling a crisis. Uh, uh, John F. Kennedy. Um, you know, the Bay of Pigs invasion was a disaster. Would he handle the Cold War? You got, I mean, look, you've got the, the Cuban Missile Crisis. That was a big issue. Uh, maybe, uh, and I've talk, talked about Jefferson and Reagan. Then in George H.W. Bush, how did Bush manage a crisis? Uh, is that the Gulf War? I mean, is this, is this what we're looking at here? Uh, at that time, of course, people forget, in 1991, Georgia H.W. Bush's approval ratings were like 78%. Everyone loved George H.W. Bush. And in the next year, he goes down in a crushing defeat in the 1992 election. So how well did he actually manage a crisis? Or did the crisis manage him? And was it really even a crisis is the big, big question. Uh, was, the, was the Gulf War even a crisis? Or is it something that George H.W. Bush kind of created uh, to uh, get the United States involved for other reasons? All right. Well, this was a fun episode, and again, it's in honor of President's Day, which was yesterday. But I wanted to talk about that that uh, McMakin piece yesterday. It was, I think, um, you know, more important ultimately than this. But I mean, I like doing presidential history, and tomorrow we're going to talk more about secession. So stay tuned for that one, and look for that new McClanahan Academy class. I'll see you tomorrow on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.